So um, get your Bibles out, please, and open up to the book of Philippians. The sermon title this morning is Joy in Death, uh, and hopefully you'll have a better grasp of what that means when we're done. Um, I'm going to read from chapter 1, verses 19 through 30. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 30. Uh, there won't be slides up, really, except for uh, the main passage this morning because of the, the timing of everything. So just keep your Bible out and uh, flip around as we move through the lesson this morning and use that uh, as a reference. Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 30. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all, or not be at all, ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God." For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Will you bow your heads and pray with me as we dig in? Father, thank you again for our time together this morning. Thank you for the, the freedom to uh, assemble together as a body of believers, to sing, to pray, to study your word, to fellowship, to encourage and, and to reprove and um, to walk alongside one another as, as we live our lives out for your glory, striving to honor you in all that we do. I pray that we would see the joy of the gospel this morning, even if it costs us our life, as Paul states, and that because of that, our lives would look radically different. We love you, Lord. It is because of Christ that we can pray. Amen. It's an illustration that I used in uh, my midweek lesson, and I wanted to use it again this morning. There's a pastor named Donald uh, Barnhouse, and he shared this testimony. He said, I was driving with my children to my wife's funeral where I was to preach the sermon. As we came into one small town, there strode down in front of us a truck that came to a stop before a red light. It was the biggest truck I ever saw in my life, and the sun was shining on it at just the right angle 
that it took its shadow and spread it across the snow on the field beside it. As the shadow covered the field, I said, Look, children, at that truck, and look at its shadow. If you had to be run over, which would you rather be run over by? My youngest child said, That shadow couldn't hurt anybody. That's right, he continued, and death is a truck, but the shadow is all that ever touches the Christian. The truck ran over the Lord Jesus, only the shadow is gone over mom. You see, Christian, Christ Jesus took on death for his elect. This means that for those of us who are hidden in Christ, for true Christians, all we will ever experience is the shadow of death. That shadow cannot hurt us. And this is a beautiful reality. It is my hope today that we will see God's word through Paul and how Paul speaks of death and life throughout these verses in Philippians and that they will stir in you a new joy for life. Church, are you constantly having your joy robbed from you? Are you constantly feeling offended or hurt, robbed of life? Are you constantly feeling uh, victimized? Uh, husbands, do you think your bride is the problem? Brides, do you think your husband is the problem? Parents, do you think your children are the problem? Ch children, think your parents are the problem? Surely it can't be you, right? Perhaps the word constant is too drastic. Christian, have you experienced circumstances that seem to steal your joy from you? If this is you, then may I ask this question. What or who are you living for? If we truly lived for Christ, totally and utterly devoted to Him, then even when our spouses or boss or children or parents, even when the world is against us, it would only serve to bring us joy in the opportunity to show Christ's love to that world, to your spouse, to your children, to your boss. These are opportunities for us as believers to put the gospel on display. Uh, a phrase I heard a lot growing up, put your money where your mouth is, right? You see, your depth of devotion to something is shown more truly when that devotion costs you something. I would submit this to you and know that I need to hear this reminder as much as I believe you do, that if our joy is easily robbed, it is because we're living for ourselves and not for God. Now, that can feel weighty, and, and so I aim to also lift that burden from your shoulders by reminding you of a few things and taking you through these passages this morning. Church, if you want to have unchanging or unstoppable joy, even in the midst of what would possibly seem as insane circumstances, then follow along with me in this passage and see what Paul declares about these things. 
we're going to see the key to joy this morning in this passage. There's three main points that I want to show you. First, I want to show you the joy of sacrificial living. Second, I want to show you the fruit of sacrificial living, what sacrificial living produces. And then third, I want us to look more closely at the command from God for us to live sacrificially. So again, the the joy of sacrificial living, the fruit of sacrificial living, and the command of sacrificial living. Beginning in Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, follow along with me. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Uh, if you know me, you know that uh, I can't just leave the, that first word in this passage that it starts with the, the word for alone. We, we have to go back and see what that's there for, right? Um, when you read the word for, you can replace that word with because. That's most commonly what the author is trying to say. So, since this is the case, we need to look at what has already been said. Verse 18 reads, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Then we see verse 19 come in. Uh, Honestly, the, the passage really probably ought to start, verse 19 ought to start at the word yes, I will rejoice. Um, so that you can kind of see the bigger picture there, right? Remember when you guys read Scripture, the, the verse and chapter breaks were put into those letters long after they were written uh, as a way to help us be able to locate certain passages and to memorize things better. But sometimes it really is helpful to think about that when you're reading Scripture and ignore those breaks and just read the words together. It really helps you get the context better. So what we have here is Paul's argument for why he doesn't care if others preach Christ with the aim to hurt him while he's imprisoned. Um, His argument for why if, if his imprisonment leads to his death or his release, he has an utter joy. Paul makes some bold statements that should shape the way we as Christians view death, but I'm going to discuss that more in our conclusion this morning. For now, I want us to see why Paul would say, if people preach Christ to hurt me, if I don't get released from prison, but rather I get killed, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that the gospel is preached and Christ is proclaimed. And that's Paul's point. This is what I mean when I say that Paul has an unshakable joy in living a sacrificial life. In Paul's eyes, if If he lives, he has already sacrificed all other desires at the altar of this desire to make Christ known, to glorify him in his life lived out. We see that so clearly in the famous passage, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
See, since the life that Paul lives out is already sacrificed to Jesus, meaning that Jesus is the focus and aim, the purpose for Paul's existence, then no one can take Paul's joy. Whether they try to take his life, or whether they preach Christ with the desire to hurt him. He's locked up in jail. We're going we're gonna to preach Christ. We're going to try and take ministry from Paul. I know, we're going we're gonna to stab him while he's down. Paul says, if, if, if Christ is proclaimed in my life, in my death, in, in ill-intended preaching of Christ, then amen. <laughs> let's, let's do that. Church, if you want to know the secret to a joy-filled life, it is one that is given up for the truer, better life to come and the ultimate fellowship with Christ himself. That's why you have scriptures like this one found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see here so clearly that Paul understood this passage and he wanted the Philippian church to know this key, this, this secret treasure to joy in all circumstances. This is the sacrificed life that Paul lives. Uh, perhaps you've heard Pastor Josh call it the crucified life. This is us taking up our cross daily to follow Christ. Now, I would submit to you that this seems a bit foreign due to the country that we live in. There's not been a lot of persecution or hardships for Christians in the U.S. Uh, it does appear that this freedom that we've enjoyed is fading away. It does seem that we are increasingly going to be persecuted for our faith in Christ and for our trust in God's Word. If that does continue, church, then we must be on mission. We must be pushing back the darkness of this world with the light of the gospel of Christ. I know this, church. If we do taste the bitterness of persecution for our faith, it will be a gracious gift from God, especially if it wakes up half-hearted professors who would not be saved otherwise. What I mean is that God often uses persecution and hardship to draw out those who are truly his beloved, true believers. Again, your devotion to something is tested by the cost of that thing in your life. This helps weed out true believers versus those who just kind of like the idea of Christianity or like the idea of a Savior, but don't truly love Jesus Christ. Let's get back to the verse, though, and see how clear Paul makes this point. Paul says, I will rejoice, for if death comes, I'll honor God. If life comes, I will live for God. 
if people with impure motives preach the gospel to try and hurt me, then the gospel gets preached and God gets honored. If people with pure motives preach the gospel, then the gospel is preached and God gets honored. We need to see some clarity here because this passage can get confusing. Paul did not promote the wrong gospel being preached. And I think this is important to to clear up. You see, in, in our world, we make a big deal about doctrine and rightly handling the Word of God. Uh, The most common pushback is, well, why does that matter? As long as God is being talked about or, or taught, that's a good thing, right? Well, let me say very clearly, this is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying if they teach falsely about God, then that's okay. Paul said if they teach with wrong motives... It is not going to hurt Paul. He won't be offended. His joy won't be taken. Because even though they desire to hurt him, this is their wrong motives, right? That's why they're teaching. They are still rightly pushing the gospel forward, Paul says, then Christ is proclaimed. Paul did not say that their wrong motives would not hurt them. And he did not say that it was okay to teach with wrong motives, or it was okay to teach falsely. And these are very important clarities. If we look at all of Scripture, we will see the utter condemnation of false teaching and the rebuke of sinful motives in anything that we do. Anything done apart from faith is sin. So your motives do indeed matter. Paul was not saying that either of these things were okay, false teaching or bad motives. Rather, what he was saying was, As long as Christ is rightly proclaimed, then I don't care if the aim is to hurt me. All I care about is the name of Christ being proclaimed, the gospel being pressed forward. He said, in these things I will rejoice. Let's read the meat of this verse one more time before we move to the next section. Verse 20 through 23. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better." Paul has an eager expectation and hope. This expectation and hope is that he would honor God, whether by his life or by his death. This is so amazing, Christian. Paul was not some superhuman Christian. You guys get that, right? In fact, Paul was a human just like you and I are. Uh, Except for his apostleship, uh, and his apostleship was not the reason why He was able to say, if I die, it's gain. If I live, I'm pressing Christ forward. This was his posture because he was a Christian. This is the posture that Jesus has commanded on all believers to have in the Matthew verse that I previously read. We are to live our lives for Christ. We are to take up our crosses daily 
and to live a crucified or sacrificial life. Hear this, church. What can anyone take from you if you have already given everything up for Christ? You have nothing to lose. They cannot take Christ from you. So let me make this practical again. What can your wife take from you when she sins against you if you have taken up your cross to follow Christ? How about your boss? What, he can, what, what can he take from you? What can your husband take from you? What, what can your children or parents or your enemies take from you? You see, if your value is wrapped up in the way others treat you, like your spouse or your boss or your family, then it's easy to get offended and hurt, right? If your value is wrapped up in having life now, it's easy to be worried about death, to not live sacrificially. However, if your value is wrapped up in Christ and your utmost desire is to live for his name, then you will be next to impossible to offend or hurt or have your value robbed from you. In fact, the opposite will happen. And here is an example. When I want to make Christ's name, his worth, his beauty, his character displayed in my marriage, which of these two scenarios best puts it on display? When my wife is perfect and never offends me? Or when she is struggling with sin and she is angry and I love her well like Christ loved me in my sin and in my anger? The answer is simple. Paul was not just proclaiming this for the church in Philippi to hear. Rather, he was displaying it to them through the way that he was enduring his current suffering. Which brings me to my second point, the fruit of the sacrificial life. Verses 24 through 26 of Philippians 1. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. In verse 21, Paul said, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. The fruitful labor Paul is speaking of is this, that he, among other things, has not completed his discipleship of the church in Philippi, and that on their account he could be used for their progress and joy in the faith. I think of it this way. Have you ever set out to build something, to make something? Uh, And it wasn't something simple, not like a a little Lego warrior, but maybe an entire city, right? Um, I I love working with wood. I like making things with my hands. And um, the, the fruitful labor is the finished product. The, the splinters and the stain and the cuts, um, all of those lead to this beautiful thing that was made. And it's a, a fruitful labor. The, the, the labor, the work to do that produced fruit. And Paul says, for me to remain alive, church, he's talking about life and death. He said, for me to remain alive means fruitful labor. It means I press Christ forward. I train you up, church in Philippi, for your joy, for your good. 
we often talk about the difficulty of sanctification. Sanctifications are hard. Uh, it is wrought by the Holy Spirit or it would not be done at all. It becomes hard when you're more and more aware of your sin. As, as Christ grows you into his likeness, you become more and more aware of all of the ways in which sin has uh, just drenched itself into you, right? Things you didn't realize you needed to stop doing suddenly begin sticking out to you. And I've often said in those moments, this is hard. But Paul said in this passage that it is for their sanctification and joy. So what am I missing? What are we missing when our focus is on the difficulty of sanctification? Well, again, I would submit to you that it is turning our focus inward instead of seeing the joy of glorifying God through our difficulty. I liken it to this. Have you ever been upset and complained about something ridiculous? Like utterly ridiculous? Just me? We've all been there, right? I, this tap water is too gross. I can't believe I've got to drink out of the sink. Well, all over the world, people are dying because they can't get clean water. First world problems, right? You see, we live in a culture of being spoiled. And due to this, I think we've missed the fruit of the sanctified, the sacrificial life. We've traded it for the whininess of the spoiled life. Let me say this another way. The Christian life, as God has had Paul proclaim it here, should be one of joy when things get hard. Why or how is this the case? Well, when things are difficult or hard, we put on display far more our love of Jesus and our purpose of living for Christ. Consider the book of Job. Satan tries to argue with God, and he says that the reason that Job is upright is because God has given him everything. Satan says, take all of that away, God, and he's going to curse your name. Even Satan knows that true love and devotion is proved and put on display in the furnace of suffering. Or to say it another way, the true fruit of the sacrificed life is shown when sacrifice actually happens. Christian, do you face hardship with joy because you know in it you will put on display the glory and beauty of Christ in you? That's Paul's point here. If I live, I display Christ. If I die, I'm with the treasure of my heart. Paul tells the church he is confident that he will be released because of their need of his help to grow in sanctification and joy. So one of the fruits of the sanctified or sacrificial life is duplication, producing believers unto their joy of living their lives sacrificially for God. Paul would have preferred to go home to his Lord, but he knew it was necessary to continue his discipleship and make more devoted Christians. Thank God for this church, because if these first believers had not pursued the command of Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations, how would the truth of God's gospel have reached us here? More poignantly, this fruit that Paul speaks of is discipleship. That's why we place such a priority on discipleship here. 
The last command of Jesus prior to his ascension was his command for us to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that Christ had taught and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's what we aim to do here. Make disciples who will make disciples. Whether far off or here, wherever we are at, we are to be making disciples. Consider the the lenders and the dikes. That's what they're going to do. Going to a foreign country, sacrificing their life in the hopes to bring the gospel to a people who have never heard it, to put on display Christ. Consider that, church. Consider your family. Sacrificing the life of your family for the next 20 years because you want to make much of Christ. It's amazing. Pray for them. Here's the beauty of what they're going to do. They will be able to stand with Paul and say they're not sure how it will turn out, but that they are eagerly hopeful and expectant that whether through their life or through their death, Christ will be glorified, and in that we will rejoice. Church, how different would our world be if all of those who profess to be Christians would live like that? Now, there are many more fruits to living a sacrificial life. One being joy in all circumstances. That was the first point that we talked about. The second point here was mainly the fruit of discipleship. We could add the fruit of obedience, the fruit of honoring our Lord and our lives lived out. All that to say, when we live sacrificially, it truly produces fruit and everlasting joy in us. I think part of the miss in current Christianity is that we don't see the command on our lives to actually live this way. We don't see how clear Scripture declares this. Jesus can't be more clear. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. So that leads me to my third point this morning, the command for sacrificial living. Verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Church, what does it mean when Paul says to let your life be lived in a manner worthy of of the gospel of Christ. Well, it means exactly what Jesus commanded to us in Matthew. It means we've been commanded to take up our cross and to follow our Lord, no matter the cost, every day. Matthew 10, 34-39 Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Did you notice that word worthy in verse 37? It's the same Greek word used here in Philippians. Church, what do you love most in this world? Where your heart lies, there your treasure lies. If Christ is not your treasure, then your life is not going to be lived out in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. This is what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. If you love something more than him, he says you are not worthy of him. To put it another way, he says you cannot be his. In fact, in in Luke, he would say if you don't hate those things in comparison to your love for him, then you cannot be his disciple. I don't want to spend a lot of time here but I want to draw this out for you to consider. Have you considered the weight of these commands of God to us? What do you treasure? You cannot live a joy-filled life in all circumstances if your joy is not in something unchangeable. God is the only thing that is unchangeable. What I did want to show you here is that this is a commandment for us. We are commanded to make Jesus our treasure and to live for him. That's what Paul is saying here when he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So if the command is clear and the purpose of the command is clear, then how do we live it out? What does that look like practically? I I don't want to just burden you with a command and and one as weighty as this and then leave you wondering like, okay, so what now? What do I do, right? So let's answer the how part of this. How do we let our lives be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel? When we live in light of this truth, that death cannot separate us from God because Christ died in our place and rose again, then we will most certainly live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. When we talk about the how part of fulfilling this command, we must see this as our firm foundation. It holds up all of the instruction of how to live this out. So let's look back at our passage and see the how that Paul gives us. Verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul says to the church, whether I make it to you or not, Here's what you do. Here is one way that you live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the first thing that Paul points to, he says, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This command begins with unity. Christian, our lives are to be lived out in a manner worthy of the gospel, and that means that we must work together for unity 
as one spirit with one mind. The Greek word for mind here is psyche, which they also used to refer to the soul. So with one spirit, one soul, one one heart, one mind, we as believers are to strive together side by side for the sake of the gospel in faith. Now there are some very clear and big problems that this verse addresses in the American church today. The first is this idea that we get to do life, the the Christian life, on our own, kind of how we want to. If that was even an option, then Paul in this letter is an utter fool. And so is the Word of God. Paul could not give this command if it were okay for Christians to do life on their own. Let me say it another way. If you are not doing life with other believers, specifically in your church, if you're not striving together for one mind and one soul in the faith of the gospel, then according to Paul, your life is not being lived in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Do you see the problem there? There's a uh, passage in Proverbs 6 that comes to mind when I think of striving for unity. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. When the passage says that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, you really ought to be drawn to that seventh thing that is mentioned. We should certainly pay attention to the first six. If the Lord hates it and we are his, we want to hate it as well, right? But what makes this seventh thing an abomination? What makes it stand out? What is it? He spoke about murder. But the seventh thing was one who sows discord among brothers. Now think about that, the weight that God places on that, and couple it with the command in Philippians to strive side by side for the faith. God has harsh words for those who would create division between brothers, and God gives clear commands for us to strive for unity. So let me clarify some things here, as perhaps this has come up for you. It is an all-too-common experience in the church body today, not just specifically in ours, but it's a common experience in churches all over. To have many people join a body for a season, but to never be truly bought in. And this is the problem with the church on every corner world that we live in. I mean, you can literally attend churches all your life and never really allow anyone to know you or be accountable to anyone's leadership. This is like keeping one foot in the door and one foot out. The the tendency in this situation is, as long as it's good for me, I'll be here. But as soon as someone like presses on something that, that maybe is an idol in my life, well then, I'll go find another place. I'll go, I'll go somewhere else where they're not going to address that. At the first sign of conflict, rather than striving alongside each other, we bail out of the boat and we leave those left wondering what happened. At best, this situation hurts. 
At worst, the rumors begin spreading and the situation becomes a disease that tears through the heart of a church body. This does multiple damages in the lives of those who remain in the body and in the lives of fellow believers who were lovingly encouraging growth. If you've experienced this situation, then you have a, a really good understanding as to why God calls this an abomination. This is quite simply one of the most obvious ways that this command is disobeyed in the church today. And ultimately, it is a lack of commitment to other brothers in Christ and a lack of commitment to Christ and what he's commanded us to do. It is a selfish action that causes us to look for something easier instead of ever really being vulnerable enough to grow, to be held accountable, to mature. Church, think about it this way. If you've never had to strive alongside another believer in your church family, then are you really bought in? Are you really doing life with those people? If God commands us in his word to this striving for unity, then he also clearly expects us to do life together in such a way that would require this striving for unity, right? The Christian life is one of repentance, Christian, we will battle sin until the Lord calls us home or until he returns. This means as a church, we can expect to, uh, we can expect to see sin rear its ugly head in those whom we love and who we are doing life with. Sin will be present in a church body just like anywhere else. Church, we will fail each other at some point. This is why we must be focused on Christ and what he has done for us. This will remind us to be quick to forgive and to strive for unity. When we do life in an intimate way, it is not a matter of if, but rather a matter of when you will need to strive for unity. When we say we are committed to each other in this body, but we are really only here as long as it is a, a benefit to us, and we're never really bought in, then we're failing to meet this command. Here's some clarity. If you are a part of a church, any church, and you decide that something doesn't sit right with you, maybe someone has, has sinned against you, rather than making the, the, the awkward phone call to say, hey, I need to chat with you about this thing, rather than going to the elders and going, hey, I, I, I disagree with something here, and let's flush this out together, if rather than those things you say, eh, there's another church on the other corner, I'm going to go to that one. Well, then you're not, according to Paul, living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. That doesn't mean that there's never a good time to leave a church. That doesn't mean that there's never a, a good time to take those steps and to cut off relationship. But it does mean that we are to be striving for unity. It is to be a regular practice for Christians. And in order for that to happen, you have to be bought in somewhere and be known. Otherwise, there's, there's no striving. If you can just live life how you want and never be bought in, never be known, then what are you striving for? This is key, but what does Paul also draw out in the passage? Verse 28, he says, "...and not frightened in anything by your opponents." This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. You see, this lack of fear that you show towards your opponents means that you cannot be defeated. So, so think about this, church. Paul said, if these people are preaching Christ 
with an aim to hurt me, they're going to find out that I have no fear of them. That if, if this imprisonment cost me my life, then it is gain. It's the very same lack of fear that Paul shows when he says, I'm confident that in my life or my death, Christ will be glorified. It's the same lack of fear that the kid in our beginning illustration showed when he said that shadow of that truck, it can't hurt anybody. So we Christians have this lack of fear because we know that even when we are suffering, even if our suffering produces death, God will be glorified in our lives lived out. Our sacrificial life lived for him. That's the point of Paul's address here. On the battlefield, the most feared opponents are those who are not afraid to die. Why is this the case? Because you can't take anything from them. You can't intimidate someone who's not afraid to, live, to give up their life. There's no way to control them. There's no way to, to uh, put yourself at an advantage. This confidence of glorifying God, whether in our life or in our death, is a sure sign to your opponents of their destruction. They know they cannot win because you cannot lose. There's nothing they can take from you. There's nothing that they can do to stop you for fighting for unity and the faith of the gospel and for promoting Christ, for pushing the gospel forward. Now here's the other half of this uh, amazing coin. The, the confidence, this confidence that shows them there's nothing they can do to take something from you, also shows them a clear sign that you have been saved by God. This confidence partially displays the gospel to your opponents. It shows them in a very real sense that they remain in destruction, but that you have something different. Think about this in the context, church. Paul's in a prison. Uh, whether he's locked up at a home or he's in a prison, uh, he's preaching the gospel to guards. Guards are believing, coming to faith. Roman soldiers coming to faith. Because they're seeing this man who goes, take my life. Send me to see my Lord. That's gain. You think you can take something from me? Go ahead. Oh, when, when you let me go, I'm going to preach Christ. So you might want to consider taking my life because if you let me go, I'm going to keep doing what I was doing that got me in here. Like, it's okay with me. And the guards are going, what's going on with this man? Why is this man different? Roman soldiers, like the, the, the men of men, are going, and I don't have that confidence. why the verse reads but of your salvation and that from god you see you cannot live in this posture if you are not actively striving to advance the gospel in american christianity the tendency has not only been to do life on your own in private but it is to do life in an easy all about you type of way america is where the prosperity gospel came from the health wealth happiness lie that God wants you to seek your joy in wealth and non-suffering. This is nothing less than an outright lie. It is not the gospel. Church, God does, listen carefully, God does want you to be unbelievably joyful, but not in your circumstances. 
Rather, he wants you to be so satisfied in him, so joy-filled in him that no circumstance, even death, can rob you of that. This is what it means to live a sacrificial life, to take up your cross daily. What joy we ought to have, Christians. No one can take your joy from you. No one can take your Savior from you. It is finished. You are secure in him. So let the circumstances be what they may. Let the persecution come. Let me honor the Lord, whether in my life or in my death. That's a joy that can't be taken. Let's read on to see this even more clearly. Verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The clarity that this verse brings in contrast to the prosperity gospel nonsense is huge. Paul said to this church in Philippi, and God through Paul says to the universal church uh, throughout time, faith and suffering have been granted to you for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ, we have been granted not just faith, but we have also been granted suffering. If you've never suffered for your faith, that should cause some questions to rise up in you. If you have never had to make sacrifices for your faith, for your Lord, then that should cause some questions to stir up in you. If you've never been hurt by another who professes to be a brother in Christ, then you may not be doing the work that God has called you to do. If we are going to strive together to make much of Christ, I will let you down and you will let me down. That is a part of that reality. And that is why God calls us, commands us to strive for unity regardless. This passage has such conviction in the commands that Paul gives to the Philippians. And I would do you a great disservice to not draw these out for you. So let me turn the page now as I begin to close. The Philippians book has long been pushed as the book of joy, and it is. Look again at the joy that Paul has in these circumstances. He's imprisoned, again, whether at home or in a jail, and yet he has the opportunity to push forward the gospel, to see God save the lives of dead souls around him. And he says he rejoices in this fact that whether in his life or in his death, Christ would be put on display, would be glorified. Christian, you can find no greater joy than to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul was not commanding this because he wanted to rob you of joy. He is sharing with you the secret to endless joy, to earth-shattering, even in death or suffering, utter joy. If these commands have hit your heart this morning and they sound burdensome, then I would submit to you that this is not the way Paul sees them. And it's not the way that we as believers should see them either. Take heart, Christian. When we pursue sanctification and obedience in joy, 
when we live our lives sacrificially for God's glory, God, who is faithful, will sustain us and provide us with an unmovable joy in Him. So I told you that I wanted to unpack this verse and cover these three main areas. First uh, was the joy of sacrificial living. Second was the fruit of sacrificial living. And third was the command for sacrificial living. I'd like to end with returning to a point that Paul teaches about uh, death in so far as it is applied to the Christian life. If you remember, I said earlier that I wanted to discuss this later. So here we are. Uh, Now is the later. Look at this passage one last time. Uh, verse 20 through 23, Philippians chapter 1. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Christians, we need to have the right view when it comes to this topic. So notice a, a few key things Paul says when he speaks about death here. Paul eagerly expects to honor God in his death. But how would he do this? Well, he does this by seeing his death as gain. Paul looks eagerly to the day that he is reunited to his Savior, face to face with the risen Lord. Paul says in verse 23 that he's hard-pressed between life and death, for to depart and be with Christ is far better. Christian, when a fellow believer departs to be with Christ, Do you celebrate that as far better for them? Do we long to be with our Lord and Savior so much that we eagerly look toward our very own death because we know that this is the point when we will be united in a more intimate way with our Lord? This worldview is what brings Paul utter joy even in the face of death. Consider this, Christian. We tend to think of death in relation to our age. Uh, what I mean is every day that I grow older, every day that the back pain is a little worse, every day that the body doesn't work the way it's supposed to, I realize it's not going to last forever. Uh, as you become more and more frail, as the years go on, it's ever more clear that there's a day coming when you won't be here anymore. However, when we are younger... A 15-year-old me, well, he, he believed he lived forever. It's no destroying him. Youth, children in the room, it's coming for you. So because of this, we tend not to think much of death unless there's a tragedy in our lives. We tend not to have this kind of eternal mindset, right? What do you do, 20-year-old Christian, when you're diagnosed with cancer? What do you do, 34-year-old father of five, when your bride doesn't wake up one morning? 
I don't draw that out in any kind of like morbid way to make you think about it. But as a Christian, the Word of God has given us information that we need to rightly form our worldview and handle situations like this. We must see the joy in God taking his child home to be with him. There is definitely mourning in these situations, but they should also be filled with celebration and joy. If God calls a believer home, celebrate the victory they have in Christ and know that they are far better off than they ever have been. Come alongside their family and love their family well, but do not be worried for them. Paul gives us an insight to death in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-15. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul's clear instruction here for the Christian is to be encouraged that death is not to us what it is to the world. Death for the Christian is eternal life with our Lord realized and experienced in an even better way, and this should bring us great hope. We should not grieve our deaths as one who sees the hope of our union with Christ and says, sorry, I, I skipped the line there as... That was going to sound really weird. We should not grieve our death as others do who have no hope. But we should confidently face our death as one who sees the hope of our union with Christ and says, for me to die is gain. The secret to joy in life is to live for Christ so that if life is taken, you have gain. That's how you can be joyful in any circumstance. When the world's falling down around you, when the things that are supposed to be supporting you aren't holding you up anymore, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How differently might we live if we truly believed it was better for us to be home with our Lord? What might we be willing to risk for God's glory if death only brings us more joy? One last note, Christian. For those who are not saved, death is the curse that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden, and it brings with it eternal death. Would you joyfully be willing to give up your life that others may not face death apart from Christ? My hope for you is that with this right understanding of death in the Christian's life, we would live with an unshakable joy and hope even in the face of death. That we would, like Paul, be willing to give our everything for the name of Christ, for the glory of God, for the good of his people. Finally, let me be very, very clear. We are not saved because we live without fear of death. We are not saved because we strive for unity. No one in the history of mankind is saved because of something they have done. No one. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. 
And our salvation is a work done by God, not by us. If you are here this morning and all you've heard is a a list of things that you must do to either not be afraid of death or, or maybe even you think I'm saying you should do these things to be saved, you've missed the point. We strive because Jesus strove. We fear no death because Jesus took death on our behalf already. It is finished. We have gain in death because we get to be with our Lord. If you are here this morning and God has not granted you faith, if you are still dead in your sin, then I plead with you to consider your sin. Consider how you will answer the Lord when he takes you home or when he returns. God's word declares clearly that the wages of sin is death. So if sin is the the career that you have taken up, then death will be the check you receive for it. But Scripture is also clear that the free gift of God is eternal life through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one is saved by something they do. They are saved by the mercy and grace of God granting them faith in what Christ has done. You cannot live life without fear of death if God has not given you faith in Christ. And so if you're here this morning and and you do not believe and you are still dead in your sins, then think about those things. Don't, Don't put the cart before the horse. It won't work. And if you're here this morning and God has been gracious to you and he has called you his own, then praise the Lord for what he's done. Think about Christ. Live for Christ. Lay down the other things. Focus on him. And all the circumstances in the world can't rob your joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you again so much for the ability to live this life that you've given us with an unshakable joy. And we know that it won't be easy We know that there will be hurt and there will be pain and there will be suffering because there is love. And we care deeply about things that you've given us. But our ultimate love, our ultimate desire is to make much of your name and to be with you. And so as Christians, God, give us the ever-constant conscious reminder that we live for something beyond this life, beyond these circumstances. When the world wages war against us, Lord, Stir in our hearts a desire and and a view that we get to honor your name in those days, in those circumstances, in those moments. May we live differently in light of what you have done through your Son on our behalf. It is because of Christ that we can pray. Amen.